This episode, kids, is now not G-rated, so don't listen to it until you grow up, okay? Right, so that song and that clip from the movie uh, Life of Brian, uh, both, as far as I'm concerned, have a connection to Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia. Uh, the that the first that the song has a connection to Haley Selassie is fairly common knowledge amongst those who know that know anything about that. Hmm. That's one of those statements that it's almost impossible for it not to be true, isn't it? Um. Uh, but the as as regards whether Monty Python's Life of Brian was inspired by Haley Selassie. I actually haven't heard that independently of myself thinking that, but it's a pet theory of mine. Uh, and my pet theory goes like this uh, Haley Selassie was declared by, the, by a group of people in Jamaica to be the Messiah. Uh, I believe that that's because they couldn't quite come at the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. That didn't work for them in Jamaica uh, because, as we all know, Jesus is Swedish. Uh, have you ever seen um, just about any every image of Jesus in the world? Uh, he tends to look very Scandinavian. All right, that wasn't quite working for the Jamaicans, uh, and I think they wanted a different Messiah. Uh, and the Messiah they chose was the person who was to become the last emperor of uh, Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, whose real name is Rastafari. Rastafari, maybe. Uh, now, hence the Rastafarians. Hence, you know, Bob Marley, reggae, Peter Tosh, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so when Bob Marley's singing Let's Give Thanks to the Lord, he's possibly talking about, unless he's talking about God, uh, he might be talking about Haley Selassie. There's really only two options, you know. It's either God, the Father, or it is Haley Selassie. The son of God. All right. It's a very interesting thing that they should choose uh, Haley Selassie to be their Messiah. These Jamaicans on you know on the other side of the the ditch, on the other side of the Atlantic. Well, actually, it's yeah, it's a it's a fair way away. It's actually more than just across the Atlantic, isn't it? It's 
you know, you'd have to, if you were in Jamaica, you'd have to go across the Atlantic and then right across Africa to the other side of Africa to get to Ethiopia. But nonetheless, they focused on Haile Selassie as their messiah. All right. Now, this was, you know, all this was happening in my childhood. And so that was the era of it, uh, when all this was big. You know, Bob Marley was huge, a huge deal when I was a kid. And, uh, and people used to call each other Rastus in, here in Australia. Uh, so my, you know, if my uncle was uh, greeting my father... He would say, oh, g'day, Rastus, how are you going? Or, you know, if um, if we kids were all playing out the back um, and he wanted to call us in for dinner, he might say, you, Rastus, you know. Well, um, well, I don't suppose he'd call us all Rastus, would he? You, Rastus, and Rastus, and you, Rastus, too, and Rastus, and Rastus, and Rastus, all in for dinner. All right. You, you get what I'm saying, though. It was a term of uh, saying... It was a way of saying, G'day, mate, you know. Uh, G'day, Rastus, you know, when I was a kid. So, uh, Rastafarianism was a big deal. Everybody in the world knew about it. Uh, now, Life of Brian... Now, you know... And, and by the way, Haley Selassie, I think, was a, a rather reluctant messiah... Or very much a reluctant messiah. He was a very Christian man for a somewhat uh, kind of brutal <laughs> dictator. <laughs> or so, well, I shouldn't say brutal dictator, you know. An emperor uh, with absolute power. <laughs> Is that a better way of putting it? Um, all right. Um, he was a reluctant messiah, as far as I can tell. In fact, I think think he might have even gone to Jamaica once or did he meet some Jamaicans over on the American continent somewhere was he doing a one of his rainbow tours over there and they you know they they reminded him that he was the their messiah and he might have said something like oh I'm not actually but I can't stop you so all right go ahead you know um so there was all that sort of thing going. Now, at the same time as all that was going on, and everybody really did know Rastafari, you know, the Rastafarians, and they knew Haley Selassie too back in the time of my childhood. Um, the li uh, life of Brian was conceived at the same time. And lo and behold, here you have a movie about the wrong person being declared the Messiah, um, you know... Uh, Three wise men, you know, this is back in the time of Jesus. You know, Haley Selassie is more like in the 70s. Uh, so, in the period I'm talking about anyway, Haley Selassie was uh, around a lot, uh, you know, long before the 70s, but this is the period I'm talking about and focusing on. Now, uh, so, Life of Brian, the plot of that movie is the three wise men, you know, follow the star... And they come to a stable and they go in and there's a little baby in there uh, whose name is Brian. As it turns out, they've gone to the wrong stable. And they start giving the baby gold and frankincense and myrrh. And 
only then realise they've got the wrong guy, uh, the wrong baby, and then gather up their frankincense and golden myrrh and go next door to the real stable, the proper stable, and hand it over to Jesus this time. Yeah? But the point is, word got around Bethlehem that Brian had been declared the Messiah, and that dogged him for the rest of his life. And everywhere he went from then on, and that's the, that's the, the plot for the movie, uh, he was declared the Messiah, but he didn't want to be the Messiah. Now, I think Haley Selassie was a little bit like that. Uh, I think Haley Selassie would have considered Jesus to be the Messiah, being a typical Ethiopian. But the Jamaicans on the other side of the world were determined that they that he should be the Messiah. And I do think they're... Mo- now, over in America, and I'm talking North and South America and in the middle too, um, skin colour was a much bigger deal in uh, over there than it was in somewhere like Ethiopia. The history of slavery was uh, a much bigger deal in America than it was somewhere like in Ethiopia, you know, because Ethiopians tended to have other people as their slaves. They weren't the slaves. Um, and the history of colonisation was a much bigger deal in America and places like Jamaica, my goodness, uh, than it was in Ethiopia, you know, because um, the, the the people who uh, ended up in America, you know, their countries tended to have been colonised in the scramble for Africa and then afterwards they had been brought over as slaves to America. Uh, but... In Ethiopia, that wasn't the case, you know, because Ethiopia wasn't colonised, didn't have it, that history of colonisation, and it didn't have that history of slavery. But nevertheless, um, over in America, you know, if you were, uh, if you were broadly speaking African, um, rather than from anywhere s- specific in Africa, it all came down to your skin colour, uh, largely, Surely, you know, I must be right about that, I think. Um, In Africa, the distinct, you know, in Africa, the the distinction between people was to do with which tribe they came from and what area they came from, you know. So even, you know, an Ethiopian would say, I'm an Ethiopian and I'm not a Ugandan or a Kenyan. Uh, and these days, you know, they might say, I am an Ethiopian Christian, but I'm not a North Sudanese Muslim. You know, or they might even say, I'm an Ethiopian Muslim and I'm not a Somalian Muslim. You know, so there's all these fine distinctions, the nuances. Uh, and, you know, a Kenyan might say, I'm not a Ugandan, all that sort of stuff, you know. So it's not about skin colour. The differentiation is between mobs, as we would call it in Australia, uh, tribes, as they call it in Africa. So even in Ethiopia, internal to Ethiopia, there's a big distinction between whether you're Tigrayan or not, or, or whether you're Oromo, or whether you're Amharan, as we call it now. Uh, so they're all the, the fine that's the fine detail and the distinction and the nuance and all that sort of stuff, you know. But over in America, uh, 
things were different because those fine distinctions, I think, were erased. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, that's genocide, you know what I mean. Uh, so people were brought over on slave ships and brought to America. And when they got to America, very common, this is how slavery works, their identity was erased. Um, and they were all called uh, blacks, if you like. Now, that was the identity conferred upon them by the slaving class, which were the Europeans, and the the Europeans, you know, referred to themselves as the whites, and so the nuance between them was erased as well. So everything gets reduced to whites and blacks, and um, yeah, that's my read of how it works in America. You know, because they got a much stronger sense of white and black um, than in other parts of the world. Now, obviously, you know, I read Biggles books to my son, um, so very much so it's the case that the English, even after, you know, even as far forward as up to World War Two, and even to this day, yeah, of course they're keyed into this idea of whites and blacks, you know. Uh, when I read Biggles books um, to my son, I uh, there are some Biggles books uh, after the wars, you know, where Biggles goes on adventures, you know, to South America or Africa or whatever. Uh, I switch every time I see the word Negro, for example, which has got nothing to do with Ethiopians as far as I know. I think Negroes are a different sort of people. Um, every time I see the word Negro, excuse me, <coughs> uh, I switch it to Italian. Uh, so, um, because, you know, there's always the Germans, the Hun, the vile Hun, you know, the Bosch, uh, that Biggles is dealing with. That's a, a given, you know, because in Biggles' books, Germany is the enemy. You know, this is all about World War One and World War Two, England versus Germany. Uh, but what I tend to do is uh, where the author, Captain W.E. Johns, an ex-fighter pilot, has placed... Um, placed what he calls Negroes into his books. I just switch the word as I'm reading to Italians. And that seems to work. Uh, and, you know, you might object if you're an Italian, but I figure, ah, yeah, that's okay. Because in the same way that it's acceptable that the Germans are the enemy um, in Biggles' books, well, the Italians were on the other side in World War Two, at least, as well, and they were the you know, Mussolini was Hitler's mate. And no one's going to complain if I have a bit of a crack at the Italians in an Ethiopian podcast, you know, podcast, because Italians are traditional enemies of the Ethiopians anyway, aren't they? And we haven't got to that very much yet, but we will. You know, the wars between Ethiopia and Italy, uh, all that's still to come. All right, but where I'm getting at with all this is that if you're an Ethiopian living in Ethiopia, 
you, you're kind of not thinking in terms of blacks and whites, I'm sure, are you? Uh, I've never been to Ethiopia. I'll have to be educated on that about from the Ethiopians at some stage. You're sort of more thinking, I'm Tigrayan and you're not, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but over in America, uh, identity was erased, as is the case every time a, a group of people become enslaved. Uh, and your identity switches from where you come from in Africa and in your mind, surely, and, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but this is my take, in your mind, you start to feel like you're an African. Whereas there's no country called Africa, you know. But in America, there is a place called Africa and we're all together and we're all the same because we're all slaves together. And so you get this idea of an African-American and we must all stick together. And so they should, you know, to rebuild our identity. But and does a new identity grow in America where we are the African-Americans, you know, and I'm black and I'm proud and all that sort of thing, you know, um, Maybe. Um, but where it gets interesting, I think, is... Uh, and, and this is a joint, a joint operation. You, the, the, the whites in America uh, confer, as I say, an identity of blacks upon the blacks. And the blacks can... You know, the blacks attach a word in return whites to white people. Uh, to me personally, you know, if someone's kind of light brown, it always looks odd to me when an American calls them black, you know. Uh, I find that really strange personally. But that's just me personally, you know. I'm not speaking for anyone else. Uh, you, there's, a, there's always a chance that someone's, you know, I'm not in the social media world, um, so I can't be defined, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're already having ideas about where I'm coming from, um, there's no way for you to even get that message across to me because you, you can't get to me, you know, I can't hear you. Uh, and I'm not even using my real name in, in these podcasts. So if a tree falls in a forest, does anyone hear it? You know, you're not even having that thought as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, um, so, uh, all right, so that, that, that's where I sort of think that um, African-Americans tend to be coming from in America. And I kind of applaud that, you know, because the new identity grows, the identity, the identity of an African-American where you, you're proud to be black and all that sort of thing, and I think that's great. Um, and um, and it's also useful as well, you know, because you get Black Pride marches and things like that, you know. Uh, right. But then where it gets a bit strange is that you get something like the Jamaicans who look back at Africa and decide to ditch Jesus who's a little bit light-skinned, perhaps, on the basis of the colour of his skin, perhaps, if I've got that right. I don't care whether I have or not. I'm, these are just working theories, you know, pet, pet theories of mine. And 
Um, and they say, no, I think an appropriate Messiah for us would be uh, the emperor of the only country that wasn't colonised, so we take inspiration from that, and we will choose uh, Rastafari, Haile Selassie, to be our Messiah. Now, over in Ethiopia, um, Haile Selassie might, you know, receive a dispatch saying that this has occurred. Oh, Dear Haile Selassie, g'day, uh, you're suddenly a god. And he goes, oh, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I kind of thought I was anyway. <laughs> but, uh, okay, and on what basis? Um, well, because, you know, African-Americans find Ethiopia uh, very inspiring because you were never colonised and all that stuff, you know. And he goes... Mm, all right, okay, fair enough. Not much I can do about it anyway. And so there's a kind of disconnect there, I think, between African Africans and African Americans. In Africa, with African Africans, um, I get the sense that their identity, their identities are much more nuanced. You know, it matters which tribe you're in and all that sort of stuff. But in a, and you know, and you can hate the next. You can hate the next guy who's got exactly the same colour as you and that's absolutely fine. There's no real downside to that, you know. You're not, it's not frowned upon. Um, so you could be a Tigrayan who... No, let's say, let's switch it. You could be an Oromo who really can't stand a Tigrayan, let's say, because, you know, I think Tigrayans are a bit, a bit hard on the Oromos from time to time. Uh, well, put it this way, I think... The Oromos were the Tigrayans' slaves for a long time and not in not a very nice way. Uh, all right, so you could say, to, if you were an Oromo, you could say, um, those bastard Tigrayans, you know, they slaved us and all that sort of stuff. I hate them and uh, all that sort of thing. But an African-American looking at those two guys, you know, let's say... Uh, a Tigrayan and an Oromo, just hating each other's guts, and then and an African American looking at them from afar, and they say, "Hey, listen, guys, you know we're all black. We've got to show solidarity." Now this is odd for me. You know, I try and uh, it's hard for me to reconcile those two things uh, because on one level I'm on the African American side uh, because his identity is strongly connected to the colour of his skin um, because because the nuance of his past identity was erased by slavery, which is an absolute genocide and a tragedy, but it happened anyway. And the fact that it did happen has caused him to have that identity where he doesn't know where his ancestors came from, perhaps, and so his ident you know, identity is huge. And his identity has more strongly being attached to the colour of his skin. But this Oromo and the Tigrayan guy, he thinks they're showing a lack of solidarity, perhaps. Um, so there you go. Um, you know, you probably know where I'm going with on this. Um, but I'll, you know, slide it back to the situation of the Jamaicans declaring Haley Selassie... Uh, 
the Messiah, their Messiah, instead of Jesus, I think it was, on the basis of the colour of his skin. All right, if that's how, why they did it. Um, if it isn't, then okay, you know, but interesting working theory by me anyway, if I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong. Right, so, and this might be the slight disconnect, and the Jamaicans say, no, Haley Selassie, you should do the honourable thing and you should accept this messianess that we are conferring upon you. And Haley Selassie says, yeah, you know what, but, you know, I'm I'm the, the latest in a line of emperors who are descended from Solomon. Uh, I'm very loyal to the whole idea of the Jews, including Jesus, regardless of the colour of their skin. In fact, I'm half Semitic myself, you know, I'm one of them, I'm a Jew. Um, And, you know, the rest of Africa kind of call us Ethiopians the Jews of Africa, you know. But then the Jamaican guy might say, no, no, you're African, you're African, you're African, and you're African. And he says, oh, God, this is confusing. I'm, I know I'm kind of Semitic. Um, So there you go. You get a bit of a, a, a tricky sort of situation. But do you know what? I think all of that, whether I got it right or wrong, kind of hints at the trickiness of being an African African compared to an African American. I'm sure as an African African, if I was an African African, I would really want to show solidarity with African Americans. But I'm sure that sometimes the way that African Americans put their case would be at odds with the way I see things if I was an African-African, you know, uh, because I wouldn't want to go solidarity all the way based on the colour of my skin if I was an African-African because, as I say, I might be an Oromo and just hate those Tigran's guts. You know, so it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Uh, all right. Now, this is my introduction to Haley Selassie and the introduction of the ha- to Haley Selassie goes along those lines uh, that... Haley Selassie was declared for whatever reason, and I think it's the reasons I, you know, my pet theory as to what those reasons are, are buried in that long spiel I just gave. Uh, but one way or another, the Jamaicans, for whatever reason, declared Haley Selassie their Messiah. Okay, so that's the first angle on Haley Selassie that I'd like to put forward. Now, Haley Selassie is, is, you know, it doesn't stop there. Um, now, I'll check the minutes on this podcast in a minute, but if it's gone too long, I might have to go to, because there's so much going on with Haley Selassie, I might have to go to, you know, episode one of two and episode two of two with him. Okay. So, a reluctant messiah, Haley Selassie. Um... Uh, I will stop that thought bubble there and move on to another thought bubble next. But I'll just wheel it around and to the back of the start of this episode where I mentioned that when I was young, Haley Selassie was a big deal. Probably the only Ethiopian we all know or knew back then. Um, and... What I'd like to draw out there is that 
He was a big deal because Rastafarians were a big deal. Bob Marley was a big deal. And Bob Marley very much considered Haley Selassie to be his saviour and his messiah and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so, and I think that, um, and, and Haley Selassie had strong connections back in England. He lived in Bath, Bath for a while, you know, Bath in England the old Roman bath uh, and the old Roman baths at Bath. <laughs> uh, and England, lots of connections. You know, I told a story about Tedros and in, and Robert Napier um, in a previous episode, a big battle between Tedros and Robert Napier. And that was England and Ethiopia coming into contact. And after that, Tedros's son went to live in the care, one way or another, of Queen Victoria over in England. Alas, he died there. Uh, but, you know, Queen Victoria in her diaries was, in almost the maternal way, worrying after Tedros's son, uh, as, because he was wilting away, I think, in, with, in England after his father died. Um, so, you know, the, the connections are very strong. Um, and then, yeah, lo and behold, you know, Rastafari, Rastafari Haley Selassie is so famous. And then Life of Brian gets made. Um, and it's kind of got the same sort of plot, you know. I think there's a connection. I don't know if Monty Python has ever said that there was a connection or they were inspired by it. Uh, but even if they weren't, oh, it must have been in the back of their minds, you know, they're making this movie about a reluctant messiah and they were smart guys and they knew what they were about. Uh, comedians like that, you know, all the great comedians are extremely good on history and politics um, and that what, you know, and that's what makes them a, a cut above most people because they tend to be much better at history and politics than the average person and... Are able, they're able to blow away their audiences because of that. You know, people like Eddie Izzard or Billy Connolly and all these people, very good at history. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and I'll, I'll finish this little section or segment, and this might, you know, I might have to split this into a couple of episodes, with um, just an observation, uh, and that's this. If I ask anyone, and I, I just want to... I'm going to need to highlight how famous Haley Selassie was in a even even as far away as in Australia and right across the world in, when I was a child because I think that's going to be important for what I want to talk about later with Haley Selassie and how famous he was goes like this if I ask anyone in the generation above me do you know who Haley Selassie is? They tend to say yes. You know, I've just for fun, I've asked a few people in the generation above me, who is Haley Selassie? They say, oh yeah, Haley Selassie, yeah, we know him. He was that Ethiopian emperor, wasn't he? Right. So Ethiopia was on the map back then. Um, but if I ask anyone in my generation or younger, uh, you know... We're stupid on that front because the, if you ask anyone in my generation or younger, 
and you say, do you know who Haley Selassie is? They'll say, uh, no, drawing a blank, except for anyone who's listening to my podcast, and except for my children, because I tell them all this sort of stuff. Um, and then if you, in desperation, if you say, do you know anything about Ethiopia? And if you ask my generation, they say, aha, yes, uh, big famine, you know, 1984, uh, Live Aid, Bob Geldof, and I've seen the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, that's what I know about um, uh, Ethiopia, the poor Ethiopians, you know, um, oh gee, I wish the world was more kind, you know, because they're in perpetual famine. Yeah, they're not. The economy's booming at the moment, but um, in in the minds of people of my generation, uh, Ethiopia has always been in poverty and always will be. You know, they're kind of poor people. Um, so that's my, you know, that's how kind of stupid my generation tends to be. Apologies to anyone listening of my generation who is a lot smarter than me, which is a lot of people. All right. If you ask people in the generation below me, the younger set, and tell me if I'm wrong. If you mention, tell me something about Ethiopians, you know, um, they're a different kettle of fish again, you know. All right, so the generation above me, they kind of know a little bit more about Haley Selassie and, you know, Ethiopia on the world stage because they grew in, up in a time before the Great Famine of 1984 and all that sort of thing. Okay, now, and... Um, if you, you know, even, did Queen Elizabeth even make a grand tour to Ethiopia back in that previous generation and was met by Haley Selassie, you know, and all that sort of stuff? And I think I remember an old BBC clip, you know, where they're saying, and now the Queen meets uh, Haley Selassie, the Lion of Judah, or whatever they call it, you know what I mean? So, whole different kettle of fish, you know. So that's the generation above me. My generation associates Ethiopia with that famine back in the 1980s. Um, and the younger generation, if you mention Ethiopia, I think they're keyed into the modern uh, progressive... I mean, I shouldn't say they're any more progressive than my generation. We were the most progressive generation ever, you know, with the flower power generation and beyond the 60s and the, and the 70s, you know, kind of all started with us, all that stuff. I think we, you know, we're flowers in the hair. <laughs> you know, we are all one and, you know, give me spots of my apples and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, okay, if you ask the younger generation, I've got a feeling that they would, if you mention the word Ethiopia, they would associate, you know, they, they think in the, Ameri the African-American way a little bit more, and they say, oh, you know, um, Ethiopia is in Africa, and that means they are all tied into the history of colonisation and the legacy of that which exists through today, which it does, I totally agree, which it exists, persists through to this day in terms of a rigged world economy where the white people, you know, can, will never, you know, they keep the boot on the black man's neck, you know, that sort of thing. But from what I've seen, I happen to sort of 
detect that the Ethiopians don't think like that at the moment at all. Um, I think they have something of a booming economy um, and they host the African Union Union at, at Ababa. I don't think they kind of think like that. Um, uh, so, um, all right. Now, um, I'll leave it off there. Uh, but there's a lot of food for thought. I I enjoyed talking about that um, erasing of identity in um, when when you become a slave. Part of what I've I said before uh, that makes me think of the Spartans, you know, because I'm married to Spartans. Uh, I'm married into the. Uh, I married a um all right that's that's my in-laws the Spartans but back in ancient times the Spartans had slaves too who happened to be pretty much Greek I think um slavery is just the way it happened in the ancient world um in civilizations at least what we call civilizations uh because economies all the way through to um the American south up until the Civil War in America, economies tended to depend on slavery, you know. And then America had their Civil War and abolished slavery and all that sort of stuff. But even then, um, slavery kept going in other places, like in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia kept the slavery going and because their economy depended on it. Uh, so they continued to keep slaves. And I don't know how long that went for, uh, but I know that it... Ethiopia keep kept keeping slaves till at least the 1930s 40s I think they might have even gone till after the war World War Two, and I think I mentioned in a previous episode I think they were kind of rather forced to give it up uh, with the UN de- declaration of human rights 1948 and you know everyone was pretty much being forced to be to do away with those ancient traditions and find non-slaving ways to run your economy. Um, and is it Oman? Oman in the Middle East? I think they had slaves up until really recently, you know, like, oh, look, I'll pick a date out off the top of my head, but maybe in up until 1980, up until 1990, you know, maybe 1970, you know. So slavery has suffered a very slow death you know, over the times, but central to... Oh, erasing identity. Yes, I like that point because that is the thing that stood out in the way that Spartans did slavery. And I think Spartans did slavery better than ever anyone. They reduced their slaves to... They took all human dignity away from them, not only in a, in their bodies but in their minds. Um, it seems clear that Spartans had a, you know, because they had all sorts of eugenic programs even for themselves, you know, they'd marry very fit people with other fit people. They'd, you know, they'd kill babies that weren't robust and strong and... If someone was, if you know, if there, if there was a young man who was musical, they'd marry him off to a young lady who was musical because they were always looking for that perfection, you know. So that's that's Spartans for you. And 
Um, oh, and the most unnerving thing is it seems to have worked, you know, because they did become something of a super race. Uh, whew, that's, yeah, that's a bit worrying, actually, uh, the fact that it did work, that eugenics thing. And uh, I know some people who are into racehorses and they've noticed that too, you know, because they do a very eugenic program. Uh, you see them um, absolutely falling in love with horses that are, you know, very nice horses in the thoroughbred sense, but don't shed it. And, and they cry real tears when those horses maybe break a leg. And they're not just crying tears because the horse is no longer going to make them $40,000 a week winning races. Uh, it is emotional. I've been with them and they are emotional because they loved that horse. They really loved that horse for that horse for that horse's sake, you know. But, um, but I also noticed that uh, they send a lot of other hack horses to the knackery and don't give them a second thought, you know. So, you know, like humans think this way sometimes. All right, but Spartans were really good at erasing the identity of their slaves. And it's, it's a bit interesting because back then it wasn't so much a white and black thing, you know, uh, because I think uh, the colour of the Spartans' slaves was roughly the same colour as themselves, you know, and I find that very interesting. But what they used to do is they went further than even the Europeans went in America, you know. They would... Um, uh, oh, they had some very deep, very profound ways of erasing your identity. Um, I think children were taken away from parents and all that sort of thing and not told who their parents were and turned into machines, essentially, pack horses. They reduced everybody's dignity in their own minds, in their bodies and their minds, down to levels lower than a pack animal. Yeah, um, and that's the way slavery used to work. And I think, I think the Spartans were the best at it. Um, but I'm sure, and I think you know, Europeans did it very brutally in America. They did it in a, in a on a, a large scale in America because they had the technology to do that. Um, Ethiopia probably not so much on a large scale. They kept their slaves, but then they probably didn't have the technology to do it in that way. I don't know. Um, but that's slavery for you. Shocking thing. Um, glad we haven't got it in Australia, uh, or any more anyway. I think Queensland had a crack, the Pacific Islanders. Um, all right, I'll let that one drift off, but I think it's all very interesting food for thought, all of that discussion. If you can make sense of it, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that could be debated, but we're, but... Here's the thing about me. If I'm, I'm not interested in triggering debates, and if you are going to debate these things, I'll stay out of it because, you know, I'm a Martian. I'm not involved. Not, I don't get into all that social media and all that sort of stuff. If you've got some answers about all this stuff, um, yeah, by all means, go hammer and tongs with each other on these things, I know everybody does all already, even though I'm not on social media, I know that these discussions are white hot on 
social media and that even spills over into the media. And so it should. They're all real things. You know, like I said before, I'm very much on the side of the African-Americans for, um, you know, building a dignity and a, an identity around being African-American and, um, and that's good, you know. But uh, I'm more in a dialectic frame of mind in this podcast. Okay, we started with Haley Selassie and we, we had to sort of sweep fairly widely in the first instance because you do have um, what I think is a very interesting connection going on between African Africans and African Americans in the form of the Jamaicans specifically deciding to make an Ethiopian their Messiah in a religious sense. Okay, that's the end of the first episode on Haley Selassie. Uh, this will have to be a two-parter because there's so much to talk about. All right, then. you might call it, are the colours of the Ethiopian flag. That's the green, the yellow and the red. This is what I think, this is the inspiration that Ethiopia is for that whole way of thinking over in Jamaica. You know, Jamaica looked to Ethiopia for inspiration. Um, And a lot of African nations have that colour scheme, the green, the yellow and the red, because I think they're all looking to Ethiopia as their inspiration, and I think a hell of a lot of that has got to do with the fact that Ethiopia wasn't colonised. And I think Ethiopia uh, has, uh, you know, Ethiopia shouldn't... um, disrespect that 
too much. You know, sometimes in previous episodes I've said, hey, is Ethiopia really part, really to the north of Africa, or are they really part of the Mediterranean world along with Greece and Egypt and the Fertile Crescent and all that, you know, and Jerusalem, you know. And, And you could almost sort of accuse me of saying, hey, Danny, you're trying to detach Ethiopia from the rest of Africa and the rest of Africa is really looking to Ethiopia for inspiration and there's a real camaraderie there. You know, like, for goodness sake, you know, they've all got variations of the same flag along with Ethiopia. I reckon that's great. And, yeah, so, as is always the case with this podcast, uh, I don't uh, come up with any conclusions ever about, listen... This is the way it is, you know. Um, I may, in episode four, say, ask questions that suggest that I think one way. But in episode six, you might find me asking questions that suggest I might be thinking the opposite way. And this is why I'm hoping uh, that um, if any of the... uh, you know, the uh, the ranting class, <laughs> as I as I kind of think of them uh, out there, who jump up, you know, as soon as someone tries to uh, talk about matter, you know, very tricky matters that I've been talking about today. Uh, as soon as you know, someone like I'm a Westerner, you see, and a Westerner, oh, you know. Westerners just can't wait to talk about slavery and colonize, you know, the colonial history and race and all that sort of stuff, you know. And if you're thinking along those lines, I guess I'm thinking, just go away, you know. You, you don't know where I'm floating on all this stuff. All right, then. Um, I hope you enjoyed that.